It's really good to see you this morning. Um, woke up this morning and got the dogs outside. And you know it's cold when uh, you take your hose and you fill up the dog bowls and it immediately turns to ice. Uh, that's cold. That's cold. And uh, the dog kind of looked at me today like, what do I do with this? I'm not sure, man. I'm not sure. Maybe lick it to death. I don't know. Um, but it's good to see you today. Welcome to the Ridge. Uh, my name is Jerry, and uh, it's my joy uh, to have served here for 11 years as, as pastor. And uh, we just want to welcome you today. If this is your first time, I, I see some guests and, and just want to say hi to you. Glad you're here. There's a guest card there in the back of the pew in front of you. Love for you to fill that out. Uh, at the end of the service, we're going to celebrate communion together and also come and, and give uh, of what the Lord has blessed us with joyfully. Uh, we'd love for you to place that guest card in one of these uh, plates up here at the back. And we simply want to be neighborly back to you, see how uh, we can uh, come alongside you and uh, just help you in this journey of faith um, and, and be there for you. Uh, also, there's uh, prayer requests uh, where you can write down on the back if you have those. Uh, we'd love to be praying for you and for your family. Uh, we count that as a privilege. Uh, today, as uh, we begin, uh, we're going to look at Acts, the, the book of Acts. And so I want you to turn there. Scott read it for us. And we're going to just get out of the gates this morning there in chapter 1. As we do today, I, I want to tell you a story about a gentleman, just real quick. Um, his name is Kent Hughes, and I, and I heard about this story the other day. I, I, I'll admit, uh, during the week, I, I kind of go back and forth from listening to music to in the car. Um, and I'm a, I can be a, a KRLD listener, which that makes me feel old. Um, I remember growing up, my dad used to have WBAP on uh, when we would be with him in the car, and it used to always just bug me because it was always news and, and sports talk and, and uh, talk about uh, world events and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and now when I turn on Carol D, I immediately think of, oh my goodness, I'm becoming my dad in this. And so, but there's something on there that they'll share every day that, that I like, and it's called The Other Side of the News. And they're, they're quirky stories, they're interesting stories, uh, they're stories that maybe you're not going to hear a lot about. And the other day I was driving and they were telling a story about a guy by the name of Kent Hughes. And Kent Hughes is this British lad and he has uh, made, he, he made this mission for himself to visit every country in the world. And you hear that and you're thinking, what? That's crazy. Every country in the world. I mean, that'd be cool, but who's got the time and the money to do that? And so Kent Hughes did it. In over 1,400 days, in a four-year span, he went to 201 countries. Here's the kicker. None of them by plane. By boat, by train, by foot. Even North Korea, he tells, they were telling a little story about how there's this little area in North Korea. They'll let you just come on for a little while and hang out for a little bit. You can't stay too long, but they'll let you come, even there. Got arrested in, I think, Congo. Not for sure what for, but, but he experienced all types of things. In fact, you can go online and just see kind of the pictures of his experience and, and his journey. And he spent about $100 a week doing this. Pretty good budget. Um, that was his mission. And this morning, as, as we look at the book of Acts, we see a mission. In fact, it is God's mission. And, and, and God wants to take his mission and spread his name, his glory, 
and his fame and his renown to 201 countries and even beyond. He wants to go to every nook and cranny. He wants to take, touch places that Kent Hughes had never touched. He wants to touch the tribal areas, the coastlands, and he wants to penetrate the heart of man so that they can know, like we've sung about this morning, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the, the goodness of God. God is on a mission to do that. That's what he's been doing all the time. He began with Adam and Eve. He's continued with the likes of Abraham. And today we see the continuation of it here in the book of Acts. And what we're going to hear today is the beat goes on, even with you and I. And so as we begin today, I want to give you some, some, some facts about the book because it helps us understand as we begin the study of this, what is God trying to do? What is he trying to say to me? And so really there's, there's three purposes to this book that we have here called Acts. The first purpose is this, that it is all about God's mission. That's what it's about. It's about spreading his glory through the gospel message and the church. And we're going to see that the church is, is birthed, it's going to expand, and it's going to turn the world upside down. Another purpose of the book is it's about God's missional plans. It's about his purposes working out through history. And when you read this, it's amazing to see what God does in everyday life. And he's working out his plans. He's working out his purposes. That's what he's doing. The third and last thing we see through this book is real simply this. Is how you and I can be the Lord's witnesses in a pagan culture. We live in a post-Christian society today. Times are, are way different than they were when many of you in here were, were growing up. Many, time, many things have changed, even just in the last 10 years. Things are always changing. And we continue to see a, an increase in lawlessness and in morality. We see in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about that, the degradation of, of mankind, of, of what we see, the futility of man, and it seems to increase and increase and increase, and we live in those times, and so how important it is that we know and understand how we're to navigate and live as the witnesses of God, and we see that in this book. What's amazing about this book, this book covers a 30-year span. It goes from A.D. 33 to from the ascension of Jesus Christ, which we're going to look in detail next week. It looks at that all the way to the Apostle Paul and his two-year house arrest there in Rome when it comes to an end, and that's about 62 A.D. And so what you have is you have this 30-year span of history, and when you read it, you're like, wow, look what God did. But the thing I want you to hear today is that that 30-year history really is just the beginning. God is beginning a work, and we see that. We see it in motion. We see what he does through and in the church. And what's cool about it and amazing about it is he wants to continue that work today in and through you and I. That's his plan. He doesn't have any better plan. You're it. You and I are it. That's his best plan. And you know what that means? It's a good plan. It's his plan. And he wants us to be a part of it. And so today what I would like to do is to focus in really the main verse of the book. The main verse is Acts 1.8. We looked at it a little bit last week as we were talking about 
this idea of witnessing. And listen to what he says in Acts 1.8. He says simply this. Jesus does as the writer writes about it. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses. Now, who's speaking here? It's probably in red in your text. Jesus is. And so he says, you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Our theme for this year is real simply, eyewitness. It's not about a catchy phrase. It's about a phrase that speaks about life, purpose, what we're to be about that you and I are be the witnesses of Jesus Christ. Real simply, that's what we're called to do. And that's what this book points to. It points to the fact that those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that they are to be Jesus' witnesses. And as you step back and you look at the book, man, that's what happens. What God says is gonna happen, it happens. And it expands to all the places, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even the remotest parts of the earth. And today what I'd like to do as we begin, I'd like just to see three things that encourage us with being the witnesses of Jesus. The first one is, is this, that we need, need to know the person and the message of God's mission. The second is there's power and there's help to be a part of this mission and to be his witnesses. We need that. And the third thing, I want you to see just real simply, his conduit of doing his mission work. Who are his missionaries? And this morning, I'm looking at them. And so look at verse one, all right? As we begin today, we're gonna walk through these verses um, and, and learn what God has here. Listen to what he says, first about the, the person and the message of God's mission. He says, the first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he, by the Holy Spirit, had given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So, Who's composing this? Isn't it interesting how this begins? It says, the first account I composed. And so it bids the question, who's composing this? And what he has written about, one, Jesus, and what Jesus has done and taught, I, I need to know, who is this? What has he written before? And so to do some investigation, I think what we would do is to ask, well, who is this guy, Theophilus, right? We'll nickname him Theo this morning, all right? But who is Theophilus. To do that, I don't know if you have this, just a little quick study note here. You might have some letters next to Theophilus, maybe a little A or something like that, or a little B or the number one or something like that, and it might direct you back to a place. If you were to take a concordance or maybe to go to net.bible.org or something like that and to do some investigation of what in the world is verse one talking about and who's this guy, Theophilus, what it would do is it would take you to another place in scripture. It would take you to Luke chapter one. And here's what Luke chapter one says, and I want us to see this because it helps us understand what in the world is being said right here in Acts one. And here's what Luke one tells us real simply. It says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. 
It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus. And so there's his name again. So that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And so who is the composer? Well, it takes us to a place called the Gospel of Luke. And the writer of the Gospel of Luke obviously is Luke himself. Luke is a Gentile. He's a doctor. He's one who investigates. He is a smart lad. And we see right here, he is the one who is composing this book as well because he also is writing to Theophilus. And he says, this is my second account. Now, who is Theophilus? Um, he's receiving the letter, but, but who is he? In Luke 1, it said that he is who? Most excellent Theophilus. You don't just call somebody most excellent, all right? I mean, I would go to Matt McKinney and say most excellent Matt McKinney, but that's because who Matt is, all right? But, but do, you don't just go up to somebody and say that, right? Most excellent usually carries with it the idea of a, a dignitary, someone of, of high regards because of their position in the place of government. In fact, if you look at like Acts 24, 25, it, Luke refers to the governor Felix as most excellent Felix. Okay, many of you guys are starting to think Felix the cat. Okay, don't go there, man, all right? Uh, most excellent Felix. So that's who Theophilus is referred to as, the most excellent Theophilus. And so he receives this letter. Isn't it amazing to think about these guys that received these letters and then the letter just blew up, man, and expanded and how God worked through that? It's amazing. And that's what God did. Luke wrote it, gave it to Theophilus. Now here's the kicker. What did he write about? It says in verse one, all that Jesus did and taught. And so sit back for a little bit this morning. Think about what the gospel of Luke tells us. Have you ever read it? Maybe you've read Matthew. Maybe you've read Mark. Maybe you've read John. A lot of similarities, but not all the same. And you think about what Luke wrote back in his gospel. Everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus taught. The book tells us that Jesus was born, right? That's where it begins. In fact, Luke begins with Zacharias and telling us that he will have a son. His name will be John the Baptist. He's going to be the forerunner. Tells us about the birth of Jesus. Then it tells us about the life of Jesus. It tells us about the miracles of Jesus, all the healings that Jesus will do. He will uh, cast out demons, uh, unclean spirits. He will raise up uh, a widow who's, who's uh, dead in, in sickness. And then he will also... Um, cause a, a food to multiply and feed thousands. He will calm the winds and he will calm the waves. These are all things that Luke will write about that Jesus did. But not only that, Jesus will teach. And we see him teaching about the gospel of the kingdom of God. We see him teaching about forgiveness. We see him teaching about the ways of God. And we see him even going to the likes of Gentiles of Samaritans. And why is that significant? Why does Luke write about that? It's because remember, a lot of this is dealing with a, with a Jewish culture. And here, Luke wants us to know that, hey, even the gospel is for those who are outside the Jewish window. It is for the Gentiles, it's for the Samaritan. Who's the Samaritan? The Samaritan often were referred to by the Jews as, as half-breeds, or what they were, they, they were mixed people of Gentile and Jewish descent. 
And that's who they were. They were children of that. And what the Jews would do is they would consider them as unlovable, people that they hated. In fact, what we find is, is, what, is what is Luke going to write about? He's going to write about the parable of the Samaritan, right? And what does that mean for you and I, that the grace of God has come to even the outcasts? The ones not with the religious pedigree, right? That's what the gospel is for. And so Jesus will go to them. He will teach them, and Luke will write about that. Jesus will minister in Galilee, and then he'll go to Jerusalem. And when he goes to Jerusalem, we eventually see this amazing week that begins with what we call the triumphal entry, and eventually the celebration of Passover in the upper room with the disciples as they sit at the table and they celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper together. And then on Friday, we call it Good Friday, Jesus will die, he will suffer, he will bear the sin of the world upon himself, and he will die for you and I. He'll be in the grave for three days, and then resurrection day. And so Luke writes about all that, but not only that, he writes about that Jesus will ascend into heaven as well. And so what Luke does in the gospel is he tells us about the person of Jesus Christ, about what he came and taught. And the purpose of that, we're gonna find out in Acts, is so that you and I would confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. That we would believe and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. That's why Jesus came. That's what he did. And so today, if we were to step back and say, okay, well, well how does the person and the message of Jesus Christ relate to me First of all, we must believe in Christ as the Son of God, that he died for us, that he came and he died so that our sins could be forgiven, and it's the only way that you and I can be right with God. First of all, we must believe that. Second of all, when he says here that you are my witnesses, what are we witnesses of? The very thing that Jesus came to do and teach. You and I are witnesses of that. And so he's called us to that. And we must know, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus teach? And so that's what he says here, that um, he wrote about this in Luke, and he says in verse two, until the day when he was taken up unto heaven, after he, by the Holy Spirit, had been given orders to the apostle whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And so, Luke wrote until the time of the ascension, but he tells us something important here in verse two. He says that before he ascended, he met with the apostles. Who are the apostles? The apostles uh, are eyewitnesses. Uh, that they're ones who experienced and saw with their eyes the life, the death, the resurrection, and even the ascension of Jesus Christ. Specifically here, the apostles um, are this 11 ragtag band of brothers. Um, these are what we were, would know as the, the 12 disciples minus one. At this point, Judas has already taken his life, so it's the crew of 11 now. And these guys right here are the likes of Peter, Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot. They all were eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus, and even those 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, they saw him prove that he truly is the risen Lord. But it says right here they were chosen. I think that's a huge word. 
It says that these apostles were chosen, meaning they were set apart for a great purpose in the mission of God, of spreading the gospel in Christ's church throughout the world. And so, a little bit about these men for a second. These are not men who had it all figured out. These were not men who, who had it all together. They were men who were sinners, who needed the grace of God to save them. They weren't necessarily the ones who had the pedigree of, of such a calling that we might think of. They were fishermen. They were even a tax collector, which, how do we feel about tax collectors? Back there in this culture, in this context, they were the cheaters, the liars, the swindlers. But these guys were average guys, yet these are the ones that God chose them. God chose them to be his 12 disciples, to be the closest one to, them, to him here on earth, and they were chosen by God's grace alone. The point is, they didn't bring anything to the table. But God looked at them, and he loved them first, and he called them to himself to follow him. They were broken men, men who failed. You look at the likes of Peter, who denied Christ three times. They didn't understand everything. They didn't understand necessarily what Jesus was up to, what he was doing. They had weaknesses. But that's what I love about what God does. He takes the weaknesses and what does he do? He shows his grace to be sufficient. In fact, in Paul's writing, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul says that Jesus said this to him, that his grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. You see, what I love about what God does and when he calls us to himself to follow him, he doesn't say, hey, listen, come with it all figured out. Come with it all together. No, he says, bring your mess. And that's where he meets us at. He comes and meets us in our mess. And he says, let me take your weakness, and in your weaknesses, let me do a work of my power. And isn't it amazing to think of that, that God's platform for you and I are our weaknesses? To show that he himself is all-powerful. And that he could take the likes of this ragtag crew, the likes of you and I, and use us for a mission greater than anything. And that's what he does with this crew. Now I would ask, what does that mean for us as a church? Because I think this speaks loudly that he calls these guys. I think it speaks to our community here. We're to be a, a community of people that don't come off that we got it all together, that we're perfect. In fact, I love the slogan of a church down in Austin where their slogan is no perfect people allowed, right? And that's really what the church is. It's a group of imperfect people who have failed, yeah, who have messed up, yeah, who are navigating through messes right now, yeah. But one thing they have in common is that they've experienced the grace of God. They've been awakened to the beauty of God and who he is. And they understand that their only hope, their only leg to stand on is the righteousness that Jesus gives to them. 
And so what does that mean? It means that together, are they gonna hurt each other? Yeah. Are they gonna sin against each other? Yeah. But they're gonna forgive each other? They're gonna dive in together and, and walk through things together? You think about this group of disciples and apostles, they were kind of like a life group, if you think about it. They were Jesus' life group. He was the life group leader, all right? Isn't that pretty cool to think about? And they kind of did life together, and they went through messes together. They were trying to figure out together. They went through um, prideful things together. They had arrogance in their group. I mean, you name it. And that's what they did together. And what Jesus says to this crew, you are my witnesses. Can you imagine sometimes, they're, they're, I mean, some of them might have sit back and said, yeah, yeah, I am, yeah, I am. But I imagine some of them are like, well, <laughs> really, really? Me? I'm gonna be your witness, Jesus? And Jesus says, yeah. And that's who you and I even are called to be. Now it says right here in chapter two that Jesus gave them commands. And what did he command them to do? If you look at Luke 24, it, it, it will tell us that Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem and that everything I have taught you, who I am, that I come to forgive the sins of mankind through my death, what you've seen in my death, what you've seen in my resurrection. He says, I want you to be a witness of all these things. And it says right here that Jesus gave them these commands by or through the Holy Spirit. And so what's the point there, real simply, is that even the ministry of Jesus was by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, obviously, we, we learn in, in places even like Isaiah, but we see it in the New Testament as well, that the Spirit of God was on Jesus, right? Uh, he's 100% God, but he's also 100% man. The Spirit of God was his power source, and, and he was speaking to them these commands by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is also our power source, and that's what he speaks to next. As Jesus' witnesses in verse four, he says, he gathered them together. Some believe real simply that they got together for a meal here and they're eating. What that does is it even proves even more the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's in this glorified body, but he can eat, he can touch, he can hang out, all that kind of stuff. If he wanted to play soccer, he could do that. He'd probably play really good, right, Roger? And so he would play great. Uh, but, but it was a bodily form. And so he's sitting there, he's eating with his disciples, and he says, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. So he gathers his apostles together, and he tells them again what the Father has promised. And what did the Father promise? He promised the Holy Spirit. And Jesus spoke of this. In fact, in John chapter 14, verse 16, listen to what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit because this is big. He says, I will ask the Father, he will give another helper that he may be with you forever. One thing that we believe about God here is that he is what we would call triune. He is three in one. He is one God, but he is three separate persons, three entities. He is the Father, he is the Holy Spirit, and he is the Son. And we see that revealed through Scripture. And here Jesus 
speaks of all three, right? Jesus, he right there is asking the Father. He's speaking of the Father, and he says, the Father's gonna give you a helper. Who's that helper? He is the Holy Spirit. And then John 14, 26 says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And so Jesus says, you're to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit that has been promised comes. I'll explain that in just a second. But something Jesus says in John 14, is, or John 15, is mind-blowing. He has talked about the Holy Spirit coming. He's talked about that he's gonna be leaving, meaning he's gonna go die, he's gonna raise up, yes, but then he's gonna send to heaven. He's, he is speaking about that, and here's what he says. Jesus says to his disciples, it is to your advantage that I go away and that the Holy Spirit comes. Now, I read that sometimes, and I think to myself, really? Because, man, Jesus, to have Jesus right here, man, that just seems like that's, that's like, the top of the mountain hill, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's the sumen bonum. That's, that's what we want, man. That's the greatest good. But Jesus said, no, no, hold on a second. I've got to go do a work for you. <laughs> I've got to be your sacrifice. I've I got, I, I got to be your scapegoat, man. I've I got to take your guilt. I've got to take your sin and shame. I'm going to do that on the cross, but I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And so here's what it means. Better than just God right here with us, Jesus says, I'm gonna give you God inside of you. I'm gonna give you the Holy Spirit. That'll wake you up a little bit, right? I mean, it should. And that's what he says the Father's promising. In fact, listen to what verse five says. John baptized with water. It was a baptism of, of immersion into water. It was a baptism of repentance. Um, obviously, we uh, observe something similar here. It wasn't identical to what John was, was doing, but it's very similar. But listen to what he says next. He says, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What's he talking about here? He, he's talking about what the Father was meaning, that God promised the Holy Spirit would come and indwell those who were believers of Jesus Christ. In fact, in 1 Corinthians Chapter 12, 13, listen to what Paul says. He says, by one spirit, we're all baptized. He's talking about those who believe in Christ into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. And so those who believe in Christ as Savior and Lord were, were immersed, were, were baptized by Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Um, and all believers who are immersed into the body of Christ um, are baptized by means of the Holy Spirit into the body of Jesus Christ. Now, that may seem mysterious because it is. It's the work of God. It's what God does. And so one who trusts in Jesus now has the Holy Spirit living in them. And Jesus tells his disciples that's what's coming what's coming. He tells them, oh, you've tasted it. You've experienced the Holy Spirit, sure, in different ways, but now he's going to come, and he's going to empower you to do something mind-blowing that's going to turn the world upside down. That's what the Holy Spirit is going to do. You think about what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit. You think about what Paul says about the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8, 11, that the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead lives in those who've trusted in Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit, that's what he does. And he testifies of who Jesus is. He causes us to remember the truth of God. He convicts us, you name it, but he's at work in us. 
Now, something about this idea of, of being baptized by the Spirit, something I just need to say by, maybe put like a little asterisk here this morning, is simply this. Spirit baptism that's mentioned here happens one time, and one time only. That there are different groups that says, hey, listen, have you, you know, they'll say to believers, have you been baptized by the Spirit? And believers will say, yeah, when I came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that's a, that's a true, accurate statement, right? When we come to know Jesus as Savior, we're baptized with the Spirit. But sometimes people will say things back to them like, no, but, but have you had, like, the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And it's like, what do you mean? When I came to know Jesus, the Holy Spirit came inside of me and lives inside of me, the presence of God. I, I can't get any more. I can't get any less. It's the Holy Spirit. He lives in me. And that's the truth we see throughout Scripture. There's some faulty teaching on that, but that's the truth that we see throughout. So the Holy Spirit lives inside of it. The question is, for you and I as believers, will we walk by the Spirit? Will we walk according to the Spirit? So that means, will we obey the things of God? And will we trust God daily? And that's what it means to walk by the Spirit, is to trust the things of God and to obey the things of God. And the Holy Spirit is our helper in that. And then the last thing this morning. So we're empowered. What are we empowered to do? Listen to what he says real quick. Verse six through eight. So when they had come together, they were asking him, the apostles were asking Jesus, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? And so, so these guys, that there's still misunderstanding here, right? But this is a great question. Because what they're wanting to know is Jesus, so is this the time that the kingdom of heaven is gonna come reign earthly, here on earth? They were trying to figure this out, and, and, and they're wise men. Because they've read the Old Testament. They, they get Ezekiel 36. They get Joel chapter two that talks about the Holy Spirit coming. And then shortly after that, the kingdom of God coming. So they understand that. And so when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit coming, they're getting jazzed because they're thinking, okay, man, we're gonna overthrow Rome. Man, this is it, dude. Let's go. Let's go for it. Jesus said, hold on a second, man. Hold on. And then look at what he says in verse seven. He says, it is not for you to know times, right? So if you're one of those lads or, or, or girls that you're like all mixed up, oh, when's it coming, man? What's it? You know, I mean, Jesus says, coming soon, man. Coming soon, coming soon. And so Jesus says here, it is not for you to know times or epochs or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So what Jesus said is, is this earthly reign, the kingdom reign, oh, it's coming. It's coming, but not yet. Not yet. God's gonna come and he will come one day and he will reign here on earth. It will come. Until then, the kingdom of God reigns and is alive and living here on earth through his church. It is in your hearts. If you know the spirit of God, you know the kingdom of God. And you're to testify to his reign here on earth. That's the kingdom of God today here on earth. Jesus will come again one day. In fact, in a few verses later, um, an angel is gonna speak of that, that he will come again. But until then, the kingdom of God is at hand through the church and through our witness. And that's what he says next. He says, okay, hold, hold the horse, all right? Hold it, man. Here's what's coming now. 
Here's what the Spirit is doing. Verse eight will be done. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Real simply this morning, what is a witness? A witness, real simply here, is one who comes to tell the truth about Jesus, what he has come to do and what he has come to teach and what that means. And then Peter will add in 1 Peter 3.15 that you and I are to always be ready to defend, to proclaim, and to explain all that Jesus has done and how it has impacted our life. We're to testify that. That's what we're called to do. That's what it means to be a witness. You want to up the ante a little bit on what witness means too? That the Greek word also carries this, that a witness is one who dies for his faith. And you might sit here this morning and say, well, I mean, I didn't come for that, dude. I did not come for that. But it carries that weight because when you look at the book of Acts and when you look at the testimony of saints throughout times, the kingdom of God is, is watered with the blood of saints. It is. And those who bore witness to Jesus Christ, not all, but some, lose their life. And so what does that tell us, tell us about being a witness? The word is, is weighty. And being a witness of Jesus, it costs. It has a price. It might, pro- it might cost your life, where Jesus would say, just like he does in John 11 with, with the death of Lazarus, he says, listen, I, basically if I sum up that, that chapter right for you, I would say this, I, I didn't come to, to, to withdraw suffering and death from you. I didn't come just to grant you comfort of life and to kick back type of Christianity. I, I didn't come to give you that and save you from all pain. I came to show you something. And Jesus would say, I came to show you me. And sometimes that comes through suffering. Sometimes that comes through pain. Sometimes that comes through witnesses laying their life down. And that's what Jesus has come to do. So it may cost you that. It may cost you social status. It may cost you students at school maybe being part of a certain group because you have to start making a stand for what's right and what's true and what's good and what's godly. It may cost you being asked to go to lunch with the crew at work because, man, you, you take a stand and say, listen, I, I can't go eat there because, hey, I'm, I'm a follower of Christ. And so it, it could look in many different ways, but a witness of Jesus, we pay price. We pay prices. But you know what? Just as, as Jim Elliot says, he, he was no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Oh, to gain the reward of heaven is so much greater than anything we lose here on earth. And so as witnesses, we, yes, pay a price. And there's a length and there's a breadth to this witness. And he says right here, just real simply this morning, it's in Jerusalem, it's in Judea and Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the world. And so not a lot of time to unpack this, but just real simply, what he's saying is, hey, wait here in Jerusalem, apostles, 
This is the, the cultural head. This is the place of, of, of religion. Things, things here happen. I want you to stay here. I want you to influence this home base first. And then I want this thing to expand out into the region of Judea, even to the northern parts of Samaria, where, yes, those outcasts are. Go to them. Go to them. Other people hate them, not us. We're going to them. We love them. And then I want you to take this, and we're going to see it. It's going to go to Paul, right? Paul? killing Christians, taking them out, helping people kill Christians like Stephen. Yes, the gospel is gonna go to Paul, the terrorist of the day. It's going to him and he's gonna take it and it's gonna spread to Rome. Oh, wow. That's what it's gonna do. And that's what we see. And then here's the story. The beat goes on and it goes on. I know there's no Acts 29 here. It ends at 28. But if there are a chapter 29, Here's what it would include. You. Me. That's what it would include. Empowered witnesses in 2016 who start in their Jerusalem, in their neighborhood, and they start praying for their neighbors. And they don't just pray for their neighbors to pray for their neighbors, but they pray for their neighbors because they have a heartbeat for their neighbors. They have a love for their neighbors, and they want their neighbors to know Jesus. And then it expands to 20 minutes when they travel to work in the region of their Judea. And it even goes to places where the likes of Samaritans are at. And then it goes beyond to places like Mexico, Guadalajara, France, and Serbia. And the beat goes on. And that's what God's doing. And so the question is, what about us? Are we truly being the witnesses of Christ? He simply wants us to do that. Where he has you at, he wants you to do that. He's empowered you to do it. It's his best plan, and it's a good one. Let's pray.